We are in uh, the theological center of the book of Hebrews, and this is difficult stuff in some ways. But um, let's just kind of remind ourselves of a couple of things. If you are using the note packet that uh, we made uh, and put together and Fred has distributed, uh, there is a chart on page um, 17, I think. But it, it looks like this, which uh, compared, mine's black and white, it is color. I see a number of you have it out. There it is, yeah. And the, I mean, I'm not going to refer to that today. We, we touched base with that a bit last week. But that is a, that's just a very important chart to have handy as we're dealing with um, two phrases that uh, keep coming up in the book of Hebrews, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the bridge between the two is Jesus. The Old Covenant is what you associate with the Mosaic Law, uh, with the sacrifices, uh, burnt offerings, etc. And even the festivals and feast days and all of the things, including the Sabbath, that are just all through the Old Testament. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, you keep coming up. These things keep coming up. That is how, I want to remind you of a couple of things, that is how the Israelite walked with God. It is not how the Israelite was saved. Okay? I mean, that's a very important sentence. <laughs> and that, that if there's so many Christians in the United States today sitting in the pews that think the Bible teaches two ways of salvation. There's keeping the law in the Old Testament, and then there's Jesus in the New. That's wrong. Both the Old and the New Covenant, you are justified, you know, that's kind of Paul's language, but you are saved, you are justified by faith, period. The Old Testament covenant, the Old Mosaic Covenant, is how the Israelite walked with God, because that is how God dealt with their sin. He atoned for their sin. Atone means to cover. He had covered or atoned for their sin through the sacrifices, and the shed blood of the lamb and the goats and all of the things that are just part of those initial chapters of the book of Leviticus help us to understand that. And all of the strictures and ordinances and, and, and details of the old covenant were to cause the Israelite every, everything they did, they were to think about God. Whether they're preparing meals, the kosher food, whether they're making their clothing, whatever it is, they are to think of God. And so just make sure that you, you, you have that clear. But when Jesus does uh, his messianic work and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he inaugurates, we're going to see that again this morning, he inaugurates the new covenant, fulfilling the old and introducing the new. And um, what has changed is not how one is saved. You are still saved by faith. Now it is do I need to offer sacrifices? Do I need to go through the keeping of the Sabbath and the feast days? No, because, and here's the phrase, we, we were introduced to it last week, we're going to see it again this week, Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. You don't need to do it anymore. Uh, the blood of bulls and goats, etc., is over. And so just keep that all in mind as we get into this material again this week. So, I'd like to start with verse 11, because the new covenant has a high priest, and that high priest is Jesus. So here the author 
really develops that whole idea of Jesus as our high priest. Look at his language. Uh, verse 11, uh, chapter 9, book of Hebrews. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, your translations will no doubt have this in parenthesis, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all, there is that phrase, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I passed this out last week, and I mean, I'm not going to go through all this again, but this is the old system. This is, a, this is the simplest one I could find of the holy place, the holy of holies, the uh, pieces of furniture in both, and so on. As we learned last week, and if you've been a, a, an intense study, done an intense study of Exodus, you know that, when Moses was given the instruction to build the tabernacle, God showed him a vision of the perfect tabernacle in heaven. And so when we just finished reading, and this is, this is something that we, we often don't think about, but the text here in, in the book of Hebrews is the only book that really elaborates on this. Jesus, Jesus put his blood on the mercy seat in the heavenly temple. Once for all. So you, I mean, you have something, you think, oh, why did he have to do that? I don't, I can't explain that in one sense why, except that is the way God set it up. So it's a once for all presentation of Jesus, his shed blood, which was an eternal once for all atone, uh, atonement, with this result, the end of verse 12 thus securing an eternal redemption. Because it's once for all, you don't have to keep doing it like you did under the old covenant. Jesus' sacrifice, his shed blood, his presenting of his blood on the mercy seat in the temple in heaven, which I think is how we're to understand this, secured it once for all, an eternal redemption. And that's a, that's a magnificent theological truth. That's the difference between the old and the new. The old, you needed to keep doing it because sin continually needed to be atoned for. Christ's work on the cross, his shed blood, his presentation of himself, presenting the blood in the mercy seat, etc., was once for all securing an eternal redemption. That's the major difference. Rob? Um, I don't recall uh, hearing about a lot of uh, animal sacrifices publicly among Jews today. You don't. You don't. There is none. Why is that? If, if there is no temple. temple. There is no temple. Okay. Now that's one of the. I'll, I'll go down. I'll go down a real quick money trail. That's one of the reasons why there are. It's small, but there's a growing number of Orthodox Jews, largely in Jerusalem that want to rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrificial system. And I, therefore reinstitute the high priesthood and all of that. But the, re, the answer to your, your question is very simple. There is no temple. If there were a temple, which they would like to rebuild, uh, and so on. And, 
probably will be rebuilt. So why why can't they sacrifice at a synagogue? Why why is it only the temple? Well, I think the answer to that is because of how God very specifically stated that in the Old Testament, it will be in my house, my temple in Jerusalem, which he gave, you know, Solomon had the responsibility. That makes sense because they do take the Bible very legalistically. So or very so literally, you know. Yeah. So, so I mean, are, are, am I answering your question? I mean, I think so, yes. I mean, it's because God, God's the one who decreed it will be in Jerusalem in that special place where the temple will be built. That's where the sacrifices are occurring. And see, that's why there are a lot of ways to look at, uh, we're going down another bunny trail here, but I'll do it nonetheless. That's one of the ways to look at what happened in A.D. 70 when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And over the next several decades, a lot of things happened, but they basically forbade Jews from living in Jerusalem. That's ultimately what's going to happen. They're going to change the city to a, a Roman name. and I mean, it's all things that don't have anything to do with our class right now. Sounds like a similar effort today. Well, yeah, but it 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 was saying something to them as well. Um, the old system is gone, and so what the Jews did, and that that actually had started earlier. Wherever they are spread out, and they are spread out throughout the world after AD seventy, particularly, it becomes even more widespread. Wherever you have ten families, they will build a synagogue. And the synagogue is not a place of sacrifice. Synagogue is a place of teaching. That's the reason you go to synagogue. It is a place of teaching. And, uh, you know, we have, I mean, uh, Reformed Jews and others will call their synagogues the temp Temple Bethel. We have, you know, here in Omaha, we have some of those uh, various places. But they're basically places of teaching and, and fellowship, but there, there's nothing, absolutely nothing to do with sacrifices. So have I answered your, your question? Yeah, I have more, but not <laughs> Thank you for exercising some self-discipline and not asking anymore. I'm just kidding. Now, look at what he does here, though. He, he wants to make sure, the next verse, verse 13, he wants to make sure that we understand what's happened with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So he's contrasting the two. Under the old, the blood of bulls and goats, and what he's really referring to there is the red heifer offering, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. That's the red heifer offering described in Numbers 19. Sanctify, make holy for the purification of flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience. 
from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's sacrifice purifies our conscience. Christ's sacrifice cleans us up from the inside out. You do not see that under the old covenant. Now that doesn't mean God isn't interested in what is going on in your heart. But he, he, it's, just, it's, a, it's a remarkable contrast that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So you have, you have something that the new covenant can do that the old covenant couldn't do. It begins to clean us up from the inside out. If I say it that way, do you know what I mean by that from the inside out? Um, let's talk about this for just uh, Woody. Is that like in preparation for eternal life? Yes, yes. I mean, that, just a little bit further ahead. And... That, that's right. I mean, this is all in preparation for eternal life. The, in a very real sense, Woody. And but, I, but that's not found in the first in the Old Testament. Is that correct? Uh, yes, in the way in which the author of Hebrews is talking about it. So I, I answer that very carefully. So, because um, that, let's talk a little bit about this. The, the word conscience. The word conscience purify our conscience. What does the word? What when you hear the word conscience? It's used 31 times in the New Testament. Almost always it's used by Paul. The author of Hebrews is the only exception, unless you think Paul wrote Hebrews, which I don't think he did. But anyway, Paul uses it a lot. The author of Hebrews does a few times. What do we mean by conscience? The way you think, okay? Is it, is it just an intellectual? What do you mean by spiritual? It's, it's our conscience that's alive and well and in response to knowing that we are in his will, aligned with his purposes, and not with the flesh to go our own way. Okay, that, that's, uh, that's good. Um, or how, how, you, how you think within the grace of God. Okay. See, that's That's uh, all of your comments are confirming something. We don't, we don't really know how to think carefully about conscience, and I, that's not a criticism of you. I mean, I in all my year I've done it because I, but in all my years I've never heard a message preached on conscience. People talk about conscience, and if you've ever watched Jiminy Cricket, you know, you, you know he's the conscience of Pinocchio. I only know that because my kids like that story. So we read it and we also watched Disney's thing. That has nothing to do with it. I just thought I'd mention it because that's amazing. Conscience is a, it's almost a mysterious word. I mean, it really is. It is so hard to get our arms around what conscience is. Conscience can have two sources. The spirit informing our conscience 
or I'll use, I think Fred used this word, but the, the word Paul uses so often, our flesh informing the, the conscience. Conscience is an innate sense of right and wrong. And awareness. What's that? And awareness. And awareness, yes. It's an innate, innate sense of right and wrong. But the Bible speaks much of the human capacity to harden conscience. For example, in Romans chapter 2, and I'm thinking of verse 14 and so on, Paul says conscience is a witness of God's revelation to us. In other words, that God plants in the human heart an innate sense of right and wrong. And he said, he, Paul, in Romans 2 says, that is a testimony, a witness of God's revelation. Isn't something that's just made up. That's, God puts that in, uh, let's just use, you know, the, the example of a little child. A little child does have an innate sense of right and wrong. And mom and dad are to reinforce that. And you take your child to Sunday school, the, the child is to re, be reinforcing, have that being reinforced, and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that then the Holy Spirit begins his work of reinforcing what's already there. But what happens, what happens through sin? Sin hardens the conscience, suppresses that sense of right and wrong. And all of a sudden, conscience is no longer a reliable guide to what we do. Does that sentence make sense to you? Because we're, our conscience becomes hardened. And our conscience is now able to rationalize what is really sin. And a good example of this is in Acts 23. Paul says, I persecuted the church with a good conscience. I believed I was doing what God wanted me to do. I believed I was doing what was right. But he wasn't. He was doing something despicable. So this becomes something that the author of Hebrews has just said. It is Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his atonement placed in the mercy seat of the eternal temple in heaven, and the result of that eternal redemption that now begins to cleanse conscience. And he's going to talk about this coming up in the next chapter. It's through the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. Sabbath was the sign of the old covenant. The Holy Spirit's the sign of the new covenant. And you begin to see that the Holy Spirit, in the new, his work during the era of the new covenant, which we're in, begins to cleanse conscience. And so its hardness becomes softened. And the Holy Spirit, using his word using the counsel of others, and our, our relationship with the Lord, uh, I could write more there, but begins to just reinforce that, that important purpose that God gave to conscience to help us in making the decisions in our life that honor him, <laughs> that is honor the Lord. And so it's a, this is a, it's something that we skip over so quickly. It is a remarkable theological point when he mentions purify our conscience. Because that's something that you do not see discussed. As a matter of fact, there is no Hebrew word for conscience. 
in the Old Testament. There is no Hebrew word. The closest you can get is the Hebrew word for heart. 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 You, you know, you know, it's a metaphor, but not just heart. But it's it's so it's this is this is quite an almost astonishing theological point he's making here. Again, to set up the contrast, the new covenant through the finished work of Jesus Christ and his final atoning work of, uh, on the cross, etc., and his application of his blood on the mercy seat in the eternal temple in heaven, I mean, all those things he's talked about, that eternal redemption, which now is possible, has another amazing application. Purifies our conscience from dead works. We think we're doing something right. We're not. It cleanses and purifies that so that we can serve the living God. So it's, it's, this is something the Apostle Paul talks a great deal about in the book of Romans. He, he really talks a lot about that. That as the, as, the, uh, as the work of Christ and his finished redemptive work and the coming of the Holy Spirit, a major part of chapter 8 in Romans, you begin to see... It's that transformation from the inside out. He is dealing with the things that we can't deal with in our own, a hardened conscience. And you listen, I mean, I've, I've worked with men in prison for quite a long time, uh, and that's one of the things that you see when you're working with, with individuals who have rationalized sin and rationalized sin. They have such a hard conscience almost impenetrable, but then they come to know Jesus. And you start, I mean, I've worked, I remember a couple of guys in prison that I was working with a number of years ago. It's a remark, you start to see a softening. And guys that could rationalize and do anything and never lose the night's sleep, all of a sudden bothered, even by saying something to an inmate that, oh, maybe you shouldn't have said it that way. Maybe I heard him. You know, five years ago, he couldn't have cared about that because Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is cleansing conscience. So now this sensitivity to things that you were never sensitive to, that's an element, uh, let me rephrase that, that is an application of the, the, the new covenant's work through the Holy Spirit. So we're growing. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is one of the things that it, it's, a, it's a tremendously important dimension of the New Covenant. As he's trying to help, and remember he's writing to Jews in the first century who are struggling with all of this, have all this heritage and all this, and now you're telling me about Jesus, and he's trying to say, yes, because Jesus has completed the old and introduced the new. Get on board with the new the old was good, it had a purpose, it's fulfilled, it's over, get on board with the new. So he's going to keep saying, press on now, go forward, stop going backwards. All right. Is everybody with me? This is really important, so I'm going to assume that you're really with me. All right. Verse 15, what's the first word? Therefore. Therefore. He, and that means Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. And you ought to underline that, or circle that, or do something with that in your Bible. 
a mediator of a new covenant. What does the word mediator mean? If you're ever involved in labor management negotiation, you go to a point where they bring in a mediator. What does that mean? Reconciling differences. Somebody who comes in between and tries to reconcile the two parties who disagree on 150,000 things. They want to negotiate a contract that will be 150,000 pages. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. So Jesus is our mediator, a mediator of a new covenant. Why is he a mediator? In what way is he a mediator? Okay, he's between the two covenants. What else? That chart that we looked at a couple pages earlier. He's a mediator of a new covenant. A mediator, he's coming between whom? Us and God, with the intent of bringing the two together. Now, when when that relationship was broken with God in the Garden of Eden, guess who moved? It was humanity, not Jesus. But anyway, so, I mean, he's serving this incredibly important role. He's mediator of a new covenant. So there again is that language. The old is fulfilled. The old is gone. The old is over. Don't think of the old anymore. Think of the new. Would the high priest have been the mediator? Yes, that, excellent. The, the priesthood in the Old Testament was the mediator between God and the people. Absolutely. Because they're the ones that did two things. They facilitated all the sacrificial system and they taught the people the law. I.e., they taught the people about God. Now, that is gone because Jesus is our high priest. So therefore, it is logical and reasonable, and that's what he's doing here, to think of Jesus as a mediator, the mediator of a new covenant. He's the ultimate and eternal Absolutely. Ultimate and eternal. They don't need it anymore. We don't need any more mediators. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it just—they should have embraced us, but to embrace it meant I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my security. I'm going to use that nice house I have in Jerusalem, which they did. I mean, they lived—they lived on the west side of Temple Mount. They lived well. We've uncovered in archaeology. Is that part of the law then that they, uh, the rest of the Jewish community supported. Them? The, the Levites and those people who were in the temple performing ceremonies. That's right. And by support, you mean financially supported. Yeah. Yes, that's right. They, they did. All right, now, look at the next word after covenant. So that. It's a result clause. There's a result that goes with this. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, there's a lot there. But since he's the mediator of the new covenant, the transgressions committed under the first are now taken care of. Nobody said anything. Nobody looked up. Is that just Israel? Well, it's anyone 
anyone that was serious in terms of responding in faith to who God is and what he has done, because there were many proselytes, many Gentiles that came in. But anyone, anyone that walked with God in the New Testament, excuse me, in the Old Testament, now God stamped on their life, paid in full. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what the author is saying here? That all the transgressions of the old were a cover. They were atoned for. But the price of redemption was paid by whom? By Jesus. For all of those in the past and for all of those in the future. That's above and beyond the which is in the old testament. That's right. That's right. Because redeem is a the, the verb redeem means to buy, to purchase. And what was the price of that purchase for Jesus? His shed blood. Because the the, the pronoun them in verse fifteen are all of the Old Testament saints, Jew or Gentile, that responded in faith to God and all that he had done and so on. I have a quote here. One theologian has put it this way. All Old Testament saints were saved on credit and all bills came due at Calvary. And God's stamp paid in full. I mean, so do you, I mean, so do you really understand the importance of verse 15? This would be a significant thing for a Jew, I mean, any Jew at any time, but especially a Jew in the first century that's struggling with all of their heritage and hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition, and then hearing the message of Jesus, hearing about the new covenant, and then understanding something else. That this is how God took care of all human sin. All transgression. He atoned temporarily. He covered temporarily through the blood of bulls and goats. He covered eternally and permanently with the shed blood of Jesus. And he redeemed us. He bought us. That's why in the language of the Old Testament, Jesus is our goel, our kinsman redeemer. He's bought us. I don't know. This is exciting truth, but I know. But I mean, it's just it, it's so it's so theologically profound, and it's it's explaining something to us, especially in verse fifteen. It's explaining something to us. It's really an important question. How did God deal with all the sin of all the Old Testament saints? How did He? Well, through the Old Testament sacrificial system, He was able to atone for the sin. That's how they could walk with Him. But Jesus. All of those still had a debt that had to be paid. God atoned out of his grace and mercy, but that debt was finally and once for all paid by Jesus. All Old Testament, all New Testament, all coming until Jesus comes back and history ends and all that stuff. So, I mean, you're, just, you're seeing now how in, in terms of God's redemptive history, how important the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is. It takes care of everything. 
And so here's, here's, here's an important theological point that the author's interjecting that would have been really important for a Jew in the first century struggling with all this. Oh, so that is even why Jesus was important in his death, burial, and resurrection and his sacrifice. It took care of all of the Old Testament debt of sin. He atoned for it. He covered it through the blood of bulls and goats year after year after year after year after year. But he finally, once for all, dealt with it forever through Jesus. I saw a hand out of the corner of my eye. Okay. And Daniel, I think. Go ahead. Um, it seems obvious. But this says that there were saints in the Old Testament who were saved. The saved salvation was on Christ. Well, righteous men could be saved. Yeah, absolutely, and and they are saved. But the, the what the author is trying to help us to understand theologically, God atoned and covered their sin year after year after year through the sacrifice, etc. The bulls and goats, all that stuff that we we've talked about before. But He did it finally and completely in Christ. All of the tra- of them that redeems them. The them are the Old Testament saints. I'm in verse 15. From the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So it's just, it's, it's how God finally and eternally and once for all dealt with all human sin. I mean, it, and that's really, uh, you know, this is an original way to put it by, by no stretch because I've heard many people say that. Jesus dealt with it past, present, and future sin. Of all humanity. That's how God dealt with it. Daniel. I'm still having a hard time understanding uh, <clears throat> the Old Testament, they were saved by faith. That's what Paul says. Does that mean that they believe in God? And they, they were, they're doing all the sacrificial system and all that kind of stuff. But that's, that's besides the point. I mean, they, like Abraham, he was justified by faith. So all the saints from the Old Testament, they all, the key thing that they needed to do is just believe in God. Uh, it isn't only, I mean, that's a really good question. I'm trying to figure out how I want to answer this uh, without, um, well, I'm going to do it this way anyway. Um Let's back up for just a minute, okay? God has always had a witness of himself, who he is, and what he's doing. In terms of the entire corpus of his revelation, it's got four segments to it. God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in conscience which we sort of just talked a little bit about, human conscience. God reveals, has revealed himself in his moral law, which he gave to Israel. And then, of course, finally, in, in the very first verses of this book, in Jesus. Now, Daniel, if you, it isn't just theism. I'm putting it, it isn't just believing in God. It is believing in a God. All, all of those different aspects of God's revelation, how are you responding to those? And so you have this understanding 
that God is the creator. God is the one who has made a universe based on certain ethical standards, what is right and what is wrong. And God has taken care of my problem, my sin. Now, for an ancient Israelite, maybe some of them had, an under, based on the reading of the Old Testament, understanding there's coming a Messiah who's going to die. But most of them didn't have that kind of a theological depth. But they understood, God is taking care of my sin. By atoning through the sacrifice, covering my sin. I mean, all of those things. And I believe that. And so you were responding to the revelation that God has given and all that God is doing. And I believe in him. I trust in him. And so you see that. For, I'm just using this as another example to show the depth of this. You see that in the Psalms. The psalmist, whether it's Asaph or it's David or it's Solomon or Psalm 90, it's Moses, all the different writers, they all have this sense of God's word, God's revelation, what God is doing, and I believe it. I trust him. My confidence is in him. And you know, Psalm 119, which is the longest of the psalms, is David's extended meditation on the word of God. I mean, it's a, that's an amazing psalm when you study it. From the, and it, you really say it takes days to study the thing. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it's, it isn't just a cursory, oh, I believe in God. Okay, if you're in. It isn't quite that. I don't mean that sounded so cynical. I didn't mean it the way it sounded that way. It, but it isn't just theism. You are responding to wherever you are here, all that God has revealed. And you believe it. And you're responding in faith to it. I do believe that. And I love God's law. And I love to go and offer. I love to go into the temple and offer sacrifices to him. I love to offer. I mean, because I understand what he's doing through all of those. Okay? So, in a way, believing it's uh, repentance with the... uh, security that he will take care of my sin. Yeah, there's a lot in that sentence. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure why you're putting repentance in there. I mean, I understand what you mean, but I'm not sure why you're putting that in there necessarily. Well, I, I but as you respond to God's revelation, and you know, you, you, you're understanding the law, you're understanding the depths of your sin. Yeah, and you're understanding that God is taking care of that through the blood of bulls and goats. And again, you read, for example, Psalm 51, David's penitential psalm. Man, you see a God who really understood his sin, really understood how sin has destroyed him. And only God's grace, and like he says in the verse 1 of Psalm, be gracious to me, O God. David really understood his God. He understood his God as God of grace, not just the God of justice. I don't know if I'm answering, but I mean, it's the depths of, it's the depths of understanding who God is, what he's doing, why he loves me, how he's taking care of my sin, because I am a sinner. I mean, all of those things are clear in the Old Testament economy of things. They really got it. What? Another question. Why do you think that it's so hard for people to to 
what I mean by this is that sometimes we think, well, if I sin right now and then I go outside and I have a heart attack, that puts my salvation in jeopardy. Like, and I usually tell people, well, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all the sins. Um, even if you have like unconfessed sins and if you die, you still have that guarantee. That the power of Jesus is sufficient for that. Daniel, you got to back up and review Romans chapter 6. Justification by faith. Justification is a forensic legal term. Two dimensions to it. You're declared not guilty and you're declared righteous. That's your position. That's your identity. That's who you are. And I believe in the eternal security of the believer. So you go out and are killed in an automobile accident or have a heart attack or some other tragic event, and you, you put your faith in Christ, you're justified. There is absolutely no doubt you're going to be in heaven. Unequivocally, absolutely no doubt. Because your position is secure. And again, Romans chapter 8, those last couple of verses of Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He goes through all these possibilities. Now see, that's why... And you were a student of mine, but you didn't have me for any theology stuff. But to to make sure you have clarity in your mind and to teach your people the difference between justification and sanctification. Well, it's just in my context that, that a lot of the Hispanic people come from from like the Armenian side. Of they the do. That's right. So they come to our church because they really like our Bible-based church and stuff like that. And that's one of the theological issues that I'm always dealing with, like trying to I, I um, hear you. correct that. I and hear so you. I'm, I, when it comes to this kind of uh, ideas, I always try to get as much information possible so I can kind of articulate it well with the people so they can kind of understand. Uh, so that's why I asked you. Well, you, you're, you're, doing, you're doing great work there. I know, I know what you're doing. And that's, that's fantastic to... Uh, to confront in a loving way the shortcomings of an Arminian approach to things when it comes to salvation. Because an Arminian, and some of you maybe don't quite know all we mean by that, you always have a challenge of assurance. And I am absolutely convinced, Daniel, if there's one thing I know for sure, God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. He does not want us to doubt that. And again, Romans 8 is a wonderful place. But it's also, 1 John chapter 1, uh, in one of my classes I'm going to teach 1 John in the fall, but in one of my other Bible studies. But I, I, I'm doing that because there's people in that class that are really struggling with this issue of insurance. And chapter 1 is so central. Three key points. One, verse 7, the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. That's the relational forgiveness and not judicial forgiveness. And then thirdly is chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus Christ is our advocate. Now those three central facts give me assurance. It's not up to me. It's, it's what God has done through Christ and his ongoing work in my life. It isn't talking about 
that I have to go back and start over. Okay, oh, got to get saved. I told you before, I had a guy when I was in Michigan, back in Pennsylvania. He came, oh, I got saved again last night. Something like 83 times he'd been saved. That guy has totally no understanding of, of what's really salvation's about. He just, he goes, he sins. Well, I got to start over again. That is not how we're saying. See, that's, the Armenian can get to that point. Where every time you de- you fall into egregious sin, oh, I've lost my salvation. Now I got to go back and start over again. Is that really how God wants us to look at it? So you know, just keep talking about justification and talking about sanctification. Okay. Oh my. All right. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to say one thing. You know, most of us had fathers. <laughs> okay, so if your dad tells you, I want you to do this, and you say, yes, I'll do it, and then you don't do it, you know your father is going to be displeased because it was important for him that you do that, and you said you would do that. And his love continues, but he may choose to discipline you. But his love is always there. And I think, you know, I, I went through that early on because of the church I attended. If you can lose your salvation, you're saved. And you can lose fellowship, but you're not going to lose your salvation. He is your father. He loves you. Even though you didn't know that job. (laughs) You know, and it's going to happen that way. Because all of us have seen that. So, I think there's a... You can break the fellowship and you... When it's broken, you don't feel good about it. And you want to reconcile. And that is, I think, when we can say, Father, forgive me. I mean... Uh, even the disciples had problems with him. You know, unless I can put my hand, and he didn't have to, he just saw it. There was no record in the Bible that he put, put his hand into his side. And, um, well, I don't know, that's, that's encouraging I have. I'm going to trust him for what he said. And I might lose my fellowship, but I, I'll get that back by confessing. All right, let's move into the next verse. Um, we're not making a lot of progress but in terms of the text, but we're asking. Yeah, I know. It's just, he's a rich, rich thing. Wow. Now, what he, he illustrates this, the point of Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant and the importance of his death. Why was his death so necessary? For, verse 16, where a will is involved. That would be a will, last will and testament, right? Now, financial planning people tell us everyone should have a will. So I hope all of you have a will. If you don't, go hire a lawyer and get one. I don't know why I said that, but anyway. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Okay, I understand that. For a will takes effect only at death. 
since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. You know, Peggy and I have a will. Where is it? It's in our safety deposit box. For our kids, so that when we die, they know where it is, and they can take it to the attorney, and all the stuff that, you know, this vast estate we have that they'll inherit. And it's not a vast estate, but you know what I mean. So the author's just saying something that's very simple. Okay, I got it. Because in the Greco-Roman world, they had wills and testaments. It was a very common thing in, in, in typical family. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Something had to die. The first covenant. What's the first covenant? The Mosaic covenant. The old covenant. Something had to die. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop. Hyssop is a plant that's all over the Middle East. It's like a, a brush-like plant. You dip it and shake it. And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. What's he saying? He's taking us back to Exodus chapter 24 and Exodus chapter 29, where as the old covenant is inaugurated, it's sprinkled with blood. All aspects are sprinkled with blood. Something had to die to inaugurate the old. And in the same way, verse 21, he sprinkled with blood the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And go back to Exodus 24, Exodus 29, that's absolutely true. And here's the proposition that was central to the Old Covenant. It's central to the New Covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. What's the difference between Jesus' shedding of blood and the forgiveness that results in the Old Testament, blood of bulls and goats, shedding of blood. Because the shedding of blood of the old uh, of the bulls and goats was ongoing, continuous, had occurred constantly, but with Jesus. Here's important. This is really important sentence. The forgiveness Jesus offers because of his shed blood is judicial forgiveness. Do you understand? Judicial forgiveness. God declares you forgiven judicially as the judge of the universe declares you forgiven, not guilty, righteous. Amen. And so, this is really important. I hope Joel doesn't mind me using another sheet of personal paper here. But forgiveness in the Bible has two dimensions to it. There's judicial forgiveness, and I'm going to call it relational forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness is what the author is talking about here. But I'm going to say with Jesus... And his death, and then his burial and resurrection, all of that, that judicial forgiveness is offered. This is a dimension of justification. In other words, God declares, when you put your faith in him, because of what his son did, what we've been reading about, God declares, you are judicially forgiven. 
you, you, are, you are declared not guilty in terms of any debt, any obligation you owe me, it's taken care of by Jesus. Relational forgiveness is what 1 John 1 9 is all about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. What is that? That's talking about our relationship with him, our ongoing relationship with him. Fred used the example a moment ago, responding to Daniel's comment, that it's like a father and the child, you know, breaking one of the standards of the home and the child needs to be disciplined. I remember my, my son, when he was real small, I don't even remember what he did, but whatever he got disciplined for it. I think he asked me 10 times before he we went to bed that night, Daddy, do you forgive me? He didn't do that. For some reason, just at that point, he didn't do that. It wasn't normal. He just, for some reason, at that point. And I was just, you know, it almost broke my heart because, I, yes, son, of course. But he felt so bad about what he'd done, he thought, Daddy doesn't love me anymore. Daddy's not going to forgive me. He was like four or something like that. But just think, you and I don't have to go to God and say, oh, forgive me, Lord. And then you keep going, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. Listen, this is really important. Because you are judicially forgiven, what God is asking for you in terms of your relationship with him, Bill Bright used to put it this way, is keep your... Keep your accounts short with God. You, 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 you do something that you know is wrong and displeasing him, just say, Lord, forgive me. And pick yourself up and get going. Don't wallow in that. Because as you wallow in that, who is, who is going to use that for his advantage and for your disadvantage? The evil one. I mean, he, is just, he delights to have a Christian thinking that they've done something that so upsets God that the relationship is broken and God no longer loves me like he used to. Listen, a central truth of the Bible is there is nothing you can do as God's child that's going to cause him to love you more or love you less than how much he loves you at this moment right now. That is secure. God's not into performance as measure of his love. I mean, it's just so central. What the author is saying here is what God offers us is forgiveness. There's so many things, so many words that go with salvation. There are 33 of them, actually. But one of them is forgiveness. And the result of justification is a judicial forgiveness. And the forgiveness that so much, especially of the New Testament, talks about, like 1 John 1, 9 and others, is this relational forgiveness. Sin does affect our relationship with the Lord. It does. But how do we do that? Because confession is, in Greek, it's homologeo. It just means I'm agreeing with God. I'm just agreeing with what God already has said about what I did or, or whatever. And it's just, it's, it's a magnificent provision. I've... I used to use this with the guys in prison. Uh, I used a lot of Bill Bright stuff, but it, he calls it spiritual breathing. You exhale in confession, you inhale his love and forgiveness. This isn't judicial. This is just the ongoing, as we walk, in, in, walk with the Lord. We are going to sin. We're going to do things that are displeasing to him. So you exhale in confession, you inhale his love and forgiveness, and get going. Don't wallow in it. Because remember, his blood goes on cleansing. It, it, he, he forgives, and Jesus is our advocate. 
Those three truths in 1 John 1 are just tremendously important. That's why Paul says it again in Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And anybody that says anything different is lying. And the chief liar of the universe is Satan. All right. Good bunny trails, uh, I think. Okay, he's a mediator of the new covenant. Got it? Okay, this is your paper for next week, your thought paper. Explain in detail what the author of Hebrews means by Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant. Explain what that means. 500 words or less. Now, verse 23, we'll never get this done because it's almost a quarter of. But verse 23 through 28, the end of the chapter, he elaborates, he's already mentioned it, but now he elaborates it, the perfection the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice. It is a perfect sacrifice. And there are a number of things in this passage that answer a lot of questions people have today. Questions about reincarnation. Are there things I need to keep doing that add to the sacrifice of Jesus? So I'd like to read... uh, I'd like to read the whole paragraph, that is 23 through 28, and we'll go back and start taking it apart and continue next week. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, I only have... Uh, a minute or two to give us an overview. What the author is establishing here is the perfection, the completion of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. He is not, it is not an ongoing sacrifice. And did you also notice, it's just really important, In verse 27, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, that's probably one of the most most clear statements in the Bible that rather makes reincarnation a dead issue. I mean, it really does. It's a dead issue when you read that verse. You're not being reborn again and again, and then you die once. And after that, the judgment. So, I mean, that doesn't have anything to do with Hebrews, but I thought I'd throw it in. So he's establishing... This perfection, 
this perfection and completeness of Christ's sacrifice. It's not ongoing. It doesn't need to keep going on. It's once for all. And three times he mentioned once. He mentions it in verse 26. He mentions it in verse 27. He mentions it in verse 28. The word once. Once. Not ongoing. It's not continuing. It's once. So tomorrow what I want to do is elaborate a little more on what the author is saying as he compares the old sacrifice and the old temple and what's going on with the new temple. I strike that. That the eternal temple, the one in heaven, We've got to clarify that a little bit. So, um, and this last one, this last verse, once will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. When did he deal with sin? The first time. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Save there, that's the final stage. That's glorification. Salvation has three aspects. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification, we are saved from the penalty for sin. Sanctification, we're saved from the power of sin. Glorification, we're saved from the presence of sin. And when Jesus comes back and we get our brand new body, it's totally gone. The presence of sin, we get a brand new body for those who are eagerly waiting. Are you eagerly waiting? What was the first one? Justification. Justification. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification from the power of sin. Uh, glorification from the presence of sin. Restate your assignment, uh, would you please? Yeah, 500 words or less. Explain what the author means by Jesus as a mediator of the new covenant. Double-spaced, 500 words or less. It's fun for me to make those these fantasy type assignments. It's just a, pretending that you're going to do it, pretending that you're serious, but it's fun. Anyway, I'm going to pray here. We got, uh, I got a lot of papers. I want to make sure I have them all organized here before I leave, but let's pray. Lord, it's a fantastic passage of scripture. I mean, it is just, uh, it's awesome as the author is trying to knit together clear teaching that would have meant so much to Jewish folks in the first century struggling with how Jesus is a Messiah and, and how they fit the, all the old covenant sacrifices and Sabbath and all of that. It's all completed. It's fulfilled. It's over. Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. His death, burial, and resurrection did that. And in the new covenant, there's judicial, eternal redemption. There's judicial, eternal forgiveness because it occurs once for all. Thank you for the certainty of this teaching. There's really not a lot of ambiguity here. It's very clear what he's teaching. So I just pray as we had a lot of good questions and interaction that this is clear to the men. This is a very profound truth of the New Testament. The finished, completed, once for all work of Jesus Christ. It's done. It's completed. And now we long and wait, eagerly wait for his return for the final final aspect of our salvation, our redemption, the complete uh, abolition of the presence of sin when we receive our brand new glorified body. That's something to really look forward to. That's a grand promise you've made to us. 
And because we've seen you fulfill so many other promises, we know that's a promise we can bank on. Take care of us as we go our separate ways. May we be good representatives of you in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.